Father, as we just sang, we do come humbly and we bow in adoration before you. And just because of all your beauty and your goodness and all you are, we cannot help but to declare how great you are. And I pray this morning as we look at some texts related to idolatry that your greatness and goodness will even be more lifted up in our own hearts and minds. And we pray in Jesus' name, the embodiment of your beauty. Amen. So again, welcome everybody who's new, especially that came for the child dedication. I Thanks for coming. I know that's a significant event in, in their life, and so we're glad to um, we're glad to have all of you here. Uh, we're, yeah, maybe not the, your normal average church as you kind of saw at the beginning with all these Roman pillars and all this, but we're just a community of people who love Jesus and are attempting to center our lives around him, and we want him to be famous. So um, I'm going to jump in this morning if you don't mind. Um, so we're continuing our series, The Real Game of Thrones, on the topic of spiritual idolatry. Um, I think that a little bit speaks to itself. We'll, we'll get more back to that in a minute. Again, for those of you that are in small groups, um, encourage you to take notes on that insert because in your groups tonight or during the week, part of the discussion is going to be over what you wrote down or jot down. So just uh, want to encourage you to do that. If you are not in a small group and are wanting to be able to interact with somebody about this, um, we are starting this morning during second service in the building next door top floor, first room on the left, room 205. I have a, a couple that is going to be leading a discussion group during second service through the, the material that we're doing this morning. Um, so if you don't have a place to do that and you're interested, then I invite you to head over there at 1045 is when they will get going doing that. And so I'm, I've got a pretty awesome couple that's going to be leading that, so I appreciate them being willing to step in and do that. Um, again, if you're not in a small group and that doesn't work. I think this topic is so important and the reflection questions and all of that, I really challenge you um, to even grab a friend or two and have lunch every week or coffee and talk through the material. And if you are interested in that, again, I want to remind you there is a gray, it's, it's a little, not quite the white, but a gray sheet of paper back there that'll just tell you how in a group of two or three you can walk through this material together. So... Um, and also books, we've got the book that I was talking about last week, had a number of, a lot of people bought it, more than have ever bought a book. We sold out for service last week, didn't even have it second. Um, so the books are in, are going to be back there at the information booth. I've already had two people who have read like a third or a half of it in just sun, that Sunday afternoon last week and loved it and gave a big thumb, two thumbs up to it. So if you're a reader, I encourage you to, to, uh, to grab the book. So, okay, let's jump in. So, last week we talked about the essence of sin not being rule-breaking, but being relationship-breaking, remember? Um, that the way I think most people view sin is not the primary way the Bible talks about it. And so, I think it talks about it primarily as idolatry and that that is the sin that's under all of our other sins. Um, and I just want to say a quick thing about idolatry. Um, you know what? I think I'm going to save this for next week. You can get a quick look. There's the pictures. The dog's an awesome photo. I'm going to skip through that. I'm going to come back to that next week. 
because I'm going to have a little more time next week. But I do want to say three things about this topic. But here's what I want to do. Um, you know, last week I, I, I tried to make the case that the essence of sin is not rule-breaking, but relationship-breaking. And I want to ask this question, well, what's the essence? If that's the essence of sin, what's the essence of evil? We don't use that word much in our modern culture. That's not a word that modern ears like to hear. But what is the source of evil? Where does it spring from? And I want to go to Jeremiah chapter 2, which is one of the key passages in the Bible. I remember the first time I read this, it, I just stopped in my tracks. It, it caught my attention. It caught my heart and is just so, in, it just, it's an important text. So um, would you stand with me? And can we read Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 10 to 13 together? So read with me. Go west and look in the land of Cyprus. Go east and search through the land of Kedar. Has anyone ever heard of anything as strange as this? Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they are not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So like, who's that, like there, it's like, who's ever heard of this kind of thing? Something that's so shocking, I mean, that, that what it tells us is, is that the heavens, the whole cosmos, the whole universe, galaxies and stars are shocked at something. And so much so that they shrink back in horror and dismay. Other translations say that they're appalled that they shudder or tremble with horror. Um, pretty strong language. So what is it? What is it that makes the whole universe tremble in horror? And it, it's, uh, it is this. Let me get to it. I have lost the rest of that. Hold on. Um, I'm sorry. I've had a very long week, and it's affected my thinking this morning. So I had thinking problems last week, too. Here's what shocked everybody. Here's what shocks the universe, is that God's people exchange, they exchange the glory of God for worthless idols. Um, it would be um, that they exchange these idols that are worthless for the supreme worth, the supreme value, the supreme weight, the kavod we talked about last year that God has for something in comparison that's worthless. Philip Yancey, kind of talking about this idea, talked about he was on a trip taking his children to Disney World. He's from Colorado. And he was crossing I-70, spent his first night in Junction City, Kansas. Woke up the next day. They played in the pool that night. Woke up the next day. We're trying to get the kids to pile in the car, and the kids started screaming and yelling. And they said, we want to spend the next week in the hotel in Junction City, Kansas, going to the swimming pool here every night. And he talks about how they had no idea where they were going. So they're in a Motel 6, and to them that was the greatest place in the world. And the place that he was taking them was Disney World. I mean, can, you, can, you, can that motel in Junction City beat Disney World? I mean, have you been to Junction City? <laughs> okay. My son-in-law is from Junction City. Sorry, Josue. We will... I'll give you pizza later for that. Um, I mean, have you seen the swimming pool in Junction City, the Motel 6, compared to, there's like 50-some swimming pools at Disney World, all right? And they were, wanting to, they were wanting to exchange the glory of Disney World for 
the Motel 6 at Junction City. It's, it's kind of something similar to that, that that's why the universe is, is shuddering. Jason Huebner, this is a great C.S. Lewis quote. He referenced it this summer. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased that we've traded something great for something that just that pales in comparison. Um, we've exchanged God's beauty, His splendor, His goodness, His worth for idols. It is the great exchange. It's the great exchange. This is what sin and evil are, I believe, at their core and at their essence. And more specifically, Jeremiah tells us two things about this great exchange. There's two components to it. He says, for my people have done two evil things. So here's this word. What's the essence of evil? Two evil things. Like shrink back in horror evil, universe-shaking evil. It's that, number one, they've abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So the first component, the first part of this evil this universe-shocking, universe-appalling, universe-dismaying evil is that they abandon the source of living water, beautiful, fulfilling, soul-thirst-quenching water. They had abandoned it. And the second thing they did, the second part of this universe-shocking, universe-appalling, this thing that makes the whole universe tremble to its core is that they had dug for themselves their own cisterns of their choosing, and cisterns that don't hold water. They were looking to someone, to something of their choosing to be what only God can be, to do what only God can do, to provide what only God can provide. In their culture, there were really three main sources of water. The preferred source was a spring. Um, running water was, would be in that category, but a spring was actually more preferred because it was generally purer water. Um, if you've ever been to Abraham Lincoln's first cabin where he was born, it was built next to a spring. My mother's farm, the Zartman farm, was built around a spring. Spring, that was like their number one choice of water. It was just water that came, the bubble out of the ground. The second choice, if you didn't have a spring, was to dig a well. You would dig down to the, um, to the water table, to hit water table, and then you would bring up well, water from there, kind of like Back where I'm from in western Kansas, the Ogallala Aquifer, like you dig down to that level and you're bringing water up. If you didn't have access to those, the third choice was a cistern. Um, Israel's a very arid country most of the year, and so they would dig holes in the ground, and it's, it's a limestone-based rock, so it would leak, but they would dig holes, and then they would put plaster inside of it, maybe brick, to try to make it leak less, and then it would catch rainwater and run off, and then they would plug it up, and they would go back to that with water. But it would get insects in it, and it would become stale and stagnant. So this really was the last source that anybody would want to have water. And so to Jeremiah, th this building of cisterns is exactly what they were doing, cisterns that leak. So the essence of evil, it is a very cool core. It is not rule-breaking. It's relationship-breaking. It is abandoning the living water and building my own cistern that leaks and trying to fulfill my life from that. So what they had done, their great sin, they had lost their desire for God. 
They didn't get enjoyment from him anymore. No delight, no satisfaction, no pleasure. And so they were saying, give me something else to drink. John Piper, speaking of this passage, says this is the essence of evil. It is the failure to treasure God above everything else. It's the failure to find the spring of living water supremely satisfying. It's wanting other things more than God, preferring other things to God, enjoying other things more than God. Pretty humbling, isn't that? Because I think we're all there. So, Paul then, I want to tie this to Paul, because Paul has maybe one of the most important passages on sin in Romans. Um, the book of Romans, people consider his magnus, magnus opus of the gospel. The first three chapters, he's, he's laying out kind of a theology of sin. Chapter one is really the core to all of it. And in chapter one, he is basing his understanding of sin on Jeremiah chapter two. So I want to take it up in verse 18. And what we're going to do is very briefly, I'm going to go through what James Bryan Smith calls the six steps of ruin that humans go through. And there's a lot of stuff in this text that's really important, and I don't have time to do it. I want to, in the future, come back to this text. Um, you don't, don't feel like you have to take notes, like crazy, fast, furious notes. The six steps are inside, so don't feel like you have to write these things down as I go. But here is step number one. Um, it is the obvious reality of God. And we're told that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain, in other words, it's obvious to everyone because God has made it plain. He's made it obvious to them. Ever since God created the world, His invisible qualities, both His eternal power and His personhood have been clearly seen. These qualities can be seen in the things that God has made. Therefore, people have no excuse for not knowing God. Um, and I'm not going to get into this this morning. We talked a few weeks ago about science and faith, but the Bible is clear that knowledge of God's existence is clearly available to all people of all times and all cultures, that His creation has given sufficient evidence of Himself that people can know Him. But then we have what we would call step two, and step two is the turn away from God that Jeremiah talks about. Because what we're going to see is, is the turn toward idols always begins with a turn away from God first. Always the turn away from God first. Though he's made steps to clearly reveal himself, here's what humanity has done in verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. Um, we're told later in verse 28 that people do this because they don't think knowledge of God is worthwhile. But essentially, people push the truth. Back up above, it says they suppress the truth. They push it away. They, they don't want to know God, much less honor Him and worship Him. Some people do this actively, some passive, but the reality is we all do that. Step three is in verse, is right after that, right here, number three, which is the heart and the mind become dark. This rejection of God always has a profound impact upon the human heart and mind. And that's why it says their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened, and although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Pretty self-explanatory. So why did this happen? And that's number four. Spiritual idolatry, which is God is replaced. And we see it in verse 23. 
they exchanged. See that word? Have you seen that word before? In Jeremiah, right? The Greek word here, the, the Old Testament translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used in Jesus' day that Jesus would have known and would have used, that Paul would have used. The Greek word used in Jeremiah 2 for exchange is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1. They exchanged the glory, again reflecting back to Jeremiah 2, of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, reptile, animals, and reptiles. And then I've got this indented. Go down to 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served what kind of things? Created things rather than the Creator who is forever to be praised. So they did this great exchange. They abandoned the spring of living water and they built cisterns for their own, cisterns that are cracked and cannot hold water. And then number five, which is here, Paul, Paul does this in a way that these two are the same thing and these two are kind of the same thing. So number five, God allows us to go our own way. He allows us to pursue the thing we so strongly want to desire. So, 24, therefore, God gave them over to the over-desires of their hearts. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. And then in 26, because of this, so therefore, because of this exchange, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And if you were to read, um, and I'm going to just reference it, if you read the rest of this chapter, you'll see an example of what that looks like. But God, in essence turns the reins loose, like if you're, if you're trying to direct a horse somewhere and it keeps fighting you and you turn the reins loose and you let it go the way it wants to go, that's what this is, is he, he, that give them up language is he lets the reins go and he lets you go the direction that you want to go, that he's not going to fight you over that. And then step six is really the rest of the chapter, the rest of 26, all the way down to 32, and there's a lot to it. Um, but step six is, is that idols are pursued at all costs, even to the point of ruin. And that just like I said, it details, and this is a text worth reading this afternoon to finish Romans 1. But it details what happens to a person when I pursue idols all out, that they only lead us toward the path to ultimate ruin and destruction. They do not lead to the good life. They are not the source of living water. They're cracked cisterns that not only won't give me what I'm seeking, but will actually um, lead to my own destruction. So that's, that's the six steps that Paul talks about. The core is really that step four, which is where he's referring back to Jeremiah 2. And I just want to hit a few words in here and try to make some really important points. Um, and I'm trying to think the best way to do this with the time that we have. The key word, obviously, is exchange, right? Because that's, that's referencing Jeremiah 2. And it's obvious that he's referring to that same thing. In Jeremiah 2, the exchange is the glory of God for idols. The exchange is the spring of living water for cisterns that are cracked and don't hold water. In Romans, the exchange is the glory of God for images. It is the truth of God for a lie. It is worshiping created things rather than the creator. That's the exchange. It's different words, but it's all the same thing. And so what I want you to know is, is that this, with this idea of exchange, that idolatry is to substitute 
something created for God at the center of one's heart and center of one's life. And so an idol is a, it's a God substitute. That's what an idol is. Christopher J.H. Wright specifically says that in this substitute, you are dethroning God in your life and you're enthroning that idol, putting it on the throne of your life. That's why we're, we're talking, that's why we're using this imagery. We take God, His majesty, His glory, His holiness, His perfections, His greatness, His goodness, His power, and His beauty, and we take a created thing and we raise it to cosmic proportions in our life, make it the center of our lives, exchanging Him for a boyfriend, for a girlfriend, for a spouse, for a job, for athletic achievement, for academic achievement, financial stability, for our health, for an idea, for a political cause any of those things. So an idol is anything in creation that claims the place in my heart that only good should have, that only God should have. It's anything other than life I center my life upon, anything that's more important to me than God, anything I seek more than God that captures my heart and my imagination more than God. It's anything that my life revolves around more than God. Does that make sense? So this exchange is is a substitution is what it is. But another word that's really important is though they knew God, up in verse 21, they neither glorified Him nor, nor what? Nor, you see that? Nor gave thanks. What kind of things do you give thanks for? Give me some ideas. What kind of things do you say thank you to a person for? Thank you for generosity? Food. Oh, yeah. Coffee. Especially pizza. Like, just so you know. Pizza. I'll say thank you for anybody who... What else? Friendship? Acts of service? Help? I can think of a really big one. My daughter just got a whole ton of them about three weeks ago. Gifts! Who said that? Okay, yeah, good job. Gifts. Um, I want to show you something really interesting, this idea of giving thanks and gifts. Here's what Timothy says. 1 Timothy 4, 3 to 4, 6, 17, says, Paul says this. Paul says this. Everything God created is what? Good. God is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is good, and he gives us good gifts for our enjoyment. Um, C.S. Lewis says all the gifts God gives us are intended as signposts that are meant to point us to Him, the Creator, the Giver. Um, But what do we tend to do with the gifts that God gives us? What do we tend to do with the gifts that God gives us? I mean, the gift replaces the giver of the object of our worship, right? The good things that He gives us become the object of our worship. We turn those things that He gives us into that object. We turn our back on the giver. We give our love, our adoration, our worship to the gift. And instead of God being the ultimate end of our lives, He becomes a means to an end, and the end is the gift. He actually becomes, we just want Him only because we want the gift. Um, I think all parents have experienced this, especially if you get children that are teens and, and older. I think all parents have experienced like buying a gift for a child, like an iPod or an iPad or something. And it isn't long before something that was meant to be a gift to be enjoyed becomes something that becomes so important to them that you feel ignored or like you're not even in the room 
Ever have that experience if you're a parent? So if you've had that experience, you, if you haven't, you will. And it's, it's painful, but that's exactly what God goes through. So we take the good gifts that He gives us and we turn them into things that are more important to Him. Another word I want to show you. Um, created, the created things. What verse is that in down here? We ser- worship and serve created things. Um, and this is the, this exchange that's the heart of evil. Now, what did God say about everything He's created? We just read it. Everything God create, has created is what? Good. Everything God's created is good. And I think one of the great misconceptions about idols is that they're inherently bad things. Um, that was a misconception that I had. But nothing could be further from the truth. I want to tell you, we rarely worship evil things. We rarely worship bad things. It is the good things that plague us. Um, and that's the insidious thing about idolatry and why our, I, the idols of our hearts, I think, go so easily undetected, fly under the radar of our eyes, is because they, it is not primarily taking bad things and elevating them above God, exchanging them above God, but it's taking good things and it's making the good thing the greatest thing, the ultimate thing. Most idols start out as good things, as gifts. But then we allow those good things to take the place of God in our life. We begin to want that thing, the good thing, more than God. And then it replaces God in our hearts. And man, the human heart, we so easily do this exchange, don't we? To take a good thing like a successful career or love or material possessions, our family, and we turn it into the ultimate thing. Isn't that so easy to do? And we begin to think that those are the things that really give us significance, security, fulfillment in our lives, that those are the spring of living water. And they become the focus of our love, our devotion, and over time, we begin to deify them in our hearts. And we make that good thing an object of worship. And here's what's really interesting if you think about it, that the greater the good, the easier it is for that thing to take the place of God in your life. Do you know that? The greater the good, the easier it is for that to take the place of God in your life. This is especially true of the best things in life. The better a thing is, the easier it is to become God. The good things are prime candidates for first place in our life simply because they're so great. So I, that, I have to keep this in mind all the time, that it's the good things in my life, those are the prime candidates to be the thing that this exchange happens. And I think that's the spring of living water. And then again, I take that created thing and I elevate it above the creator and I make it supreme. All right, one more thought I want to hit out of this. There's a really important word in here. Over desires. A lot of translations actually translate it evil desires. Um, but that's not correct. And you, we're going to learn this over the next few weeks that this word desire is a very important word in the way the Bible talks about idolatry the things you love. Um, this Greek word, it doesn't really matter, but it's epithumia. Thumia is the word in Greek for a passion, a desire. And if epi is a preposition, and in Greek, if you stick a preposition on front of the word, it, it strongly intensifies the meaning. So many of the translations say evil desire because of that epi, but the word evil is not there. They're reading an idea into it. It just simply means over desire or to desire too much. That word epi 
over desire, our, we take that same concept in our word epicenter, the epicenter of an earthquake. Um, it's the ultimate center. It's ground zero of an earthquake. It is the place where all the shock waves that affect everything else radiate from. That's the idea. So Paul, in the Bible, when it talks about these desires, they're not evil desires. They're epi-desires. They're over-desires. They're epi-passions. Over-desire for career, for family, for romance, for approval. Okay? That's why John Calvin said the evil in our desires typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. That thing, I start desiring it so much, it becomes my precious, right? My precious. I don't, I can't, thankfully I can't talk like Gollum. Here's another way to talk about it. Our desire becomes inordinate. It becomes disproportionate. Um, you know, the majority of the time, the things we serve start out as good things and they deserve to be loved. But the problem is our desires become disordered. They get in the wrong order. Um, and again, the better a thing is, the easier it is to do this. Can I just show you what this looks like? Another way is to talk about inordinate desires. Inordinate, which means out of order. You know, in my search for meaning, I studied a lot of religions, and I've known a lot of Buddhists over the years too. In Buddhism, the whole problem in the universe is desire. In Buddhism, desire is bad, and desire should be eliminated and gotten rid of. The Bible says desire is a good thing. I am to desire God. It talks about desiring my spouse. The Bible, in many places, commands us to desire things. The problem in the Bible isn't desire. The problem is wrongly ordered desire or inordinate desire. It's desire in the wrong order. We would all agree that, that family is a greater thing than work. Would we not all agree with that? Men, can we not all agree with that? Okay, I see a lot of guys shaking their head. And when our desires are rightly ordered, that's the order that our lives are lived in. But when our desires become wrongly ordered, work takes the first place. Our lives become disordered. And that's all idolatry is, is the greatest thing, the thing that should be at the top of my life, becomes the second or third or fourth thing in my life, and other things get above God, the spring of living water, and my life becomes disordered. And I want to tell you, whatever you love most, that you will worship. You will worship that thing. So that's the problem in the Bible, is disordered desire. And that's kind of how idolatry works. So let me quickly kind of try to sum this up. So the essence of evil, the thing that shakes the universe to its core, is that human beings exchange the glorious God for an idol. We take the, the spring, the source of all living, true, thirst-quenching water, and we exchange it for a cistern that we dig of our own choosing that leaks water and will never give us the thing that we're really ultimately seeking. This is the essence of evil. And Paul talks about that, again, being the essence of evil. It's the great exchange. It's the substitution of a created thing for God and putting it above Him. It is the disordering of our life that we begin to desire something more, too much. We over-desire. We up-a-desire. We move it up above God. We take a gift that He gives us that is meant to point to Him, and we take the gift and we worship Him instead of the, the Creator, the Giver. Does that all make sense? That's what is the essence of evil. It's this great exchange. 
Again, as John Piper said, it's the failure to treasure God above everything else. It's the failure to find the spring of living water supremely satisfying. In its essence, evil's taking created things and elevating them above the Creator, making them the supreme thing. And the inevitable result of that is the abandoning of God, the spring of living water. So I want the worship team to come up. We're going to... Uh, finish in a minute with a song. This week, you know, in the bulletin, every week I'm going to have a sheet of questions to reflect and think about. What are the idols in my life? I've already had a lot of conversations this week with people of initial things they were thinking. This week, the focus is on entertainment and media because entertainment and media have been lifted to godlike proportions in our own culture. So a lot of the questions are asking you things about the think places you go for your entertainment, your entertainment, what media you use, what devices, how powerful they are in your life, and have we allowed devices or entertainment or media to take a, a, the wrong place in our lives to where it's higher than it should be? And we'll, we'll learn this in a few weeks, but you always know when your life's disordered because nothing works well in your life when the wrong thing gets put on the hot top. It starts creating community problems, relationship problems, um, other things in your life get negatively affected. So that's what the focus of that is. Um, let me, before we launch into this song, let me, this thing, in Romans, he says that this exchange is exchanging the truth for a lie. And do you know what the lie is that we so easily believe? The lie is this, that you can find ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate meaning, ultimate satisfaction in anything, anything other than God. That's the lie. The things that we elevate above God in our life, they are substitutes. They're counterfeits, they're fakes. They can never give you the thing you really want. It's like living on watermelon candy. Would you not agree that watermelon flavoring, fake watermelon is the worst flavoring of any fake flavoring ever created? I hate anything fake watermelon, okay? It's like living your life on watermelon candy instead of on watermelon, right? That's what it is. That's the lie. You're exchanging, exchanging, we are all exchanging the fresh spring water, the full soul-quenching, thirst-quenching spring water of God. We're exchanging it for cisterns that leak water that cannot hold water. We all need this reminder. And I want to tell you, money is a broken cistern. Romance and sex are broken cisterns. These things are all good, but they're broken cisterns. Family is a broken cistern. Success is is a broken cistern. Academic achievement, athletic achievement, a great body and beauty and brawn, those are broken cisterns. Religion is a broken cistern. A political party, a political cause, those are broken cisterns. Control, that's a broken cistern. It'll never fill you up. Living for the approval of people, that's a massively broken cistern, I know. Sports is a broken cistern. As awesome as it is that KU and K-State won football games on the same weekend, I can't remember the last time that ever happened. 
I'm glad K-State's living up to their end of the bargain finally, but sports, the Jayhawks, the Broncos, the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, those are all broken cisterns. Doesn't matter how valuable, how precious they are, they're broken and none of them can hold the water of life. None of them are supremely satisfying, beautiful. So I just want to point you, it's like drinking salt water instead of spring water. That's the book we're doing. So I want to end with this. Here's what God says in Isaiah. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me. Listen to me. Eat what is good and we'll, you will delight in the richest fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. That's his call. So we're going to finish with a song, an invitation to come to the altar. And actually, I've had a number of people this week tell me, even early on, I have a really good sense of some of my idols. And I'm not big on these coming up front things. I mean, I don't do them all the time, but I felt like with the song especially, it was appropriate. So just two weeks in, if, if there's a, you have a sense of like, I know what one or two of my idols are and God's speaking to me because we want to identify them, but we want to repent of them. And if you have a sense of something and you're like, I'm wanting to start laying that down over the course of these next few weeks as we talk about this, I want to lay it down before him. If you feel that way and you'd like to come forward, I've got, we've got sticky notes. You can write that idol or idols on that, stick them on the wood, sit down. You don't have to do that if you're not comfortable. But if, if that feels like a natural response to you, it's kind of a beginning of a repentance process, then we invite you to do that. So let's worship. you stand.
He is to be our treasure, the thing above all else. So would you end with um, a prayer with me? Would you do this with me? We're going to try to do this every week. Um, so join me. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need 
for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. And God's people said, so let us go and be a people who love God supremely above all else, and may people see the beauty of him through our lives. So you are sent.